There are many scenarios that cause us to cry. We cry at weddings, we cry at funerals, we cry at the birth of our children, we cry at the death of our spouse. We cry in movie theaters and hospitals and airports. We cry when we get the results of our 10th grade chemistry test. We cry when we get the report from the doctor. We cry when the homecoming queen is crowned. There are many scenarios in life that cause us to cry. But when was the last time that you shed a tear over the lostness that surrounds you? We live in a world of 7.8 billion people. By the broadest estimates, a third of the world's population claims to be Christian. That's approximately 2.5 billion. But today, all across this planet, There are 5.3 billion individuals waking up outside of Christ. When was the last time you shed a tear over the lostness that surrounds you? We live in a country that boasts a population of 331 million individuals. The most liberal estimations are that of the population of the United States of America, 65% of Americans claim to be Christian. Now, you and I can debate the authenticity of those converted saints, but it does need to be noted that in this country, Christianity is on the decline. It was just five years ago when that number was 75% of Americans, and it was only 30 years ago in 1990 when it was 85% of Americans claim to be Christian. In a recent study, It was estimated that currently in America, there are probably only 30% evangelical Christians. 30% equals approximately 100 million of our citizens. When I say evangelical Christian, uh, that's a bit redundant. Because I think that uh, an evangelical is about the only Christian that really resides on planet Earth. Because an evangelical Christian is someone like you, it's someone like me. It's someone who believes that the Bible is God's holy and fallible word without any mixture of error. It believes that uh, Jesus is God's son who came to earth, lived a perfect life, died on the cross for the sins of sinners, was buried in the tomb, and on the third day was raised from the dead, has ascended into the heavens, seated at the right hand of the Father with the promise that he'll come back in like manner. And as a church, we are called to take the gospel to the nations. That, my friend, is an evangelical Christian. It's a gospel Christian. And today, there's only about 30% of us. So that in America, there are at least 70% of its population that does not have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Friend, when was the last time that you shed a tear over the lostness that surrounds you? We live in the state of Alabama. And Alabama boasts a population of 4.9 million individuals. Did you know that recently Alabama was declared the number one religious state in the United States of America? About 80% of Alabamians claim to be Christian. Now, once again, we can debate the authenticity of that, but still, 8 out of 10 people in the state of Alabama claim to be Christian. But of those remaining 20%, approximately 12% of Alabamians are not affiliated with any religion. Numerically, that means that nearly half a million people in this glorious state acknowledge that they live outside of Christ. Friend, 
When was the last time that you shed a tear for the lostness that surrounds you? We live in Shelby County. Shelby County is the wealthiest county in the state of Alabama. It might also be the most secular county in the state of Alabama. From my estimations, from everything I could find, it would seem that only 45% of the residents in Shelby County claim to be Christian. We have a population of 217,000 individuals. That tells me that more than half of them acknowledge that they are living outside of Christ. That when you go to Walmart, when you go to the grocery store, when you pump gas, one out of every two individuals you see in this county are outside of a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Friend, I wonder, when was the last time you shed a tear over the lostness that surrounds you? The truth of the matter is that we care more about the crabgrass that grows in our yard than the spiritual condition of our neighbors. We are more infatuated with the closing numbers of the New York Stock Exchange than the closing numbers of souls that will spend eternity in hell. We are more focused on a football game than we are on individuals halfway around the world who will die not knowing Jesus personally. Friend, When was the last time that you shed a tear over the lostness that surrounds you? When you and I come to Romans chapters 9 and 10, we find the Apostle Paul weeping. He's weeping because of the lostness of his nation, Israel. For by and large, they had rejected Jesus as Messiah. And because of that, he is full of sorrow. There are some theologians who say that when you come to Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11, it is a parenthetical interruption to the flow of his argument through the rest of his treatise. And I, for one, could not disagree more. I do not think that this is a parenthetical interruption. I think this is a glorious continuation of what he said in Romans chapter 8. For in Romans chapter 8, there is reason for great celebration. That reason for great celebration is because of the massive mercy that God has displayed in Jesus Christ our Lord. And for Paul, that personally caused him to celebrate. But then in chapter 9, as he turns his sights on his own people, That reason for celebration now is a reason for sorrow and sadness. Because by and large, his people, his race, his country had rejected Jesus as Christ. So I believe that it is with a heavy heart and upon tear-stained parchment that Paul writes these words. Beginning at Romans chapter 9, verse 1. If you have your Bible, I invite you to take it and turn with me. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Romans chapter 9. I'll begin at verse 1. I'll read through verse 19. Then we'll flip one page over. Chapter 10, verses 8 to 17. Romans chapter 9. Let me begin at verse 1. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption as sons. Theirs, the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. 
It's not as though God's word had failed. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only that, but Rebekah's children had one of the same father, our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. Just as is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Yet one of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who resists his will? Chapter 10, verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith we are proclaiming. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus, Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it's with your heart that you believe and are justified. It's with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all. Richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? How can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? How can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing. From hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. You may be seated. With tears streaming down his face, the apostle Paul says to the Lord that if it were possible for me to be cut off from Christ in order to save some of my countrymen, I would. If it were possible for me to be separated from the sovereign one, for me to be removed from the righteous one, and by that action it would somehow save some of the people in my nation, I would do it. Do you hear what the apostle Paul is saying? He is willing to forfeit his faith. He is willing to give up his salvation in the hopes, in the promise that it might save some of his countrymen there in Israel. Let that sink in. Would you be willing to do that? 
I mean, I'm staring at a lot of people who are proud to be Americans, right? I mean, you love your country. You love this nation, and rightfully so. But how many of you would be willing to be cut off from Christ for all of eternity? To be severed and separated from the sovereign one for all of eternity just in the hopes that it might save some of those Republicans or some of those Democrats or some of those independents. I mean, would you be willing to do that? This is exactly what Paul is saying. I would be willing to forfeit my faith if by forfeiting my faith it might win my people unto you, O God. Friends, this is deep sorrow. He is cut to the core. He says to the nation of Israel, you have a privileged history. For yours is the adoption as sons. Yours is the divine glory. For if you read in the Old Testament, you will recall and remember that the Shekinah glory of God led the children of Israel through their captivity into their wilderness wanderings and safely into the promised land. And Paul is saying, no other nation can boast such a gift. You have the glory of God resting upon you. And you, Israel, you also have the covenants. You have the promises. You have God's law. There is no other nation on planet Earth where God Almighty has given his stipulations, his laws, his commands, and etched them on tablets of stone with his very finger. But you have received his word. And not only that, you also have the temple. That place that is so rich in symbolism, that place of worship with all of its rituals that always point people to the one God of the universe, Yahweh himself. You have the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And you are the chosen people of God. For Paul to reference that they are the chosen people of God is not to say that Israel has an exemption clause for salvation. No, there's only one way that anybody's saved, and that's through faith in Jesus Christ, whether you're Jew or Gentile. But when Paul speaks of them being as a chosen race, a chosen people, for they can trace the human ancestry of Jesus back to them, what he's saying is that, that God could have sent the Messiah through any nationality, through any race, but he chose Israel, the weakest, the smallest, the one that really had little reputation. But God chose Israel. It was as if that God was looking at all the tools on his tool shed and all those tools represented a nation and God picked up the nation of Israel and said, through Israel, I will send the Messiah for he will bless the Jews and through the Jews to all the Gentiles. And Paul says, you have all of this. You're a privileged people and yet... By and large, the vast majority of you, Paul says, you've rejected Jesus as Messiah. So then in verse 6, he asks and answers a great question, did God's word fail? Did God's word fail? Did the God of the word fail on making good of his promises? What's the solution? What's the answer? What's the reason? Why did so many people reject Jesus as Messiah? And his answer in the argument, it goes simply like this. Not all descendants of Israel are truly Israel. Not all descendants of Abraham are children of Abraham. You remember Abraham had a, a couple of boys, uh, Isaac and Ishmael. And while both Isaac and Ishmael had the same father, 
um, only one had the promise, and that was Isaac. What Paul is saying is that uh, this, this salvation of Jesus Christ, it, it, it is not given by ancestry. It is not given by parental pedigree. In other words, it's not based upon who your daddy is. Because you could be a physical child of Abraham and still be outside of Christ. This is not the first time that Paul has spoken like this. In Romans chapter 2, he said, a Jew is a Jew, not just outwardly. Circumcision is circumcision, but it's not just physical. For the real Jew, the real man or woman of God, is one inwardly. And real circumcision, it's not physical, but it's circumcision of the heart. So what Paul is setting up is that God's people are both Jew and Gentile. That God's people are those who trust Jesus as Savior and Lord. And this salvation that God gives, it, it's not based on human descent. It's not based on parental pedigree. It's not based on who your daddy is. It's not based on the fact that uh, your father, grandfather was Abraham. No, the, the promise came to Isaac, not Ishmael. Not only is this salvation that God gives not based on parental pedigree, it's also not based on your character. It's not based on your works. It's not based on how good you are. He uses the example of the twins. Isaac and Rebekah had Jacob and Esau. And before the twins were born, the Lord said to Rebekah, the younger will be served by the older. This is God flipping the script. This is not supposed to happen. You may recall the story that when the twins were born, Esau came out first. Jacob came nipping at his heels, that trickster. And even though Jacob was the one born second, he still was the one of divine promise. In fact, uh, Paul quotes Malachi. And in Malachi, the Lord said, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. Does that disturb anybody else in the crowd? Does that verse make anybody else a little bit uncomfortable? For God, the God of agape love, to say and for Malachi to quote him as saying, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated? Is it true that God harbored hatred, animosity, resentment towards Esau? In a similar way that Alabama fans have for Auburn fans or Democrats have for Republicans. I mean, is that, the kind of, is that the kind of thing that God's into? That God really says, I hate Esau, but I love Jacob. Beloved, that's a cultural idiom where God is communicating that his favor, his, his blessing, his salvation... It'll rest on Jacob, not Esau. And Paul, he anticipates the rebuttal from the rowdy crowd. For then and maybe now, more than a few of you want to raise your hand and say, that's not fair. It's not fair. I mean, why did God choose Jacob over Esau? That's not fair. I mean, God did that before the twins were born, before they had done anything right or wrong, good or bad. It wasn't based on their merit. It wasn't based on their character. It wasn't based on anything they had done. It wasn't that one of them did more good than bad and somehow it kind of tipped the scales in their favor. No, God chose them before they were even born. 
Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Jacob is the one who will be divinely selected. Jacob is the one who will be the child of the promise. Jacob, not Esau. And still, there may be individuals who say, but that just doesn't seem fair. Paul says the reason this is done is so that the, so that the standard of election may be upheld. Of course, when he refers to election, he's not talking about an election like we had in November. He's talking about eternal election, the election of God unto salvation for all time and eternity. And to the person who says, yep, but, but if God is the one who sovereignly selects individuals for his salvation, where the promise will go to and through, like Abraham down to Isaac down to Jacob. I mean, if, if that's how God operates, that doesn't sound fair. So Paul asked the question, is God unjust? Can I remind you that there's no one listening to my voice who wants God to be fair with us? We do not want a fair God. For if God were fair with us, all of us would justifiably be condemned for all of eternity. Our sin is that bad. Your sin's that bad. My sin is that bad. I mean, we kind of parse our sins, don't we? The big ones, the small ones, the ones that are really bad, the ones that are not so bad. We think to ourselves, I'm not as bad as so-and-so, and and that so-and-so may be seated right beside you. That so-and-so may be across the room. That so-and-so may have been across the table at Thanksgiving or Christmas, and you think to yourself, I'm not nearly as bad as that scallywag. But still, the reality is true. All of us are sinners. There's no one righteous, no, not one. And our sin is that bad. We deserve hell. And God is that holy. God really is that perfect. Where his standard is excellence. His standard is moral perfection. Our sin is that bad, and God is that holy. And so Paul concludes that this salvation that God gives, it is not because of parental pedigree. It is not because of character or your own human merit. Somehow you do more good than bad. It's not based on what you do. It is based on God's mercy, his massive mercy. That salvation alone is based on the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. The wonder of salvation is not that some are saved and others are not. The wonder of salvation is that any of us are saved at all. And if you are saved, if you're part of the redeemed, the only one you need to thank this morning is God in Jesus Christ. It's not because of you It's not because of your ancestry. It's not because who you're connected to. It's because of God in his massive mercy has opened up your eyes unto his salvation. It's because of God and God alone. The wonder of salvation is not that some are saved and others are not. The wonder of salvation is that any of us are saved at all. But still, there may be more than a handful of you that want to push back and say, but, but pastor, this idea of divine election, that God choosing those that he will favor, God choosing those that he will save, I, I, you may think to yourself, that just doesn't sit well with me. 
And as I've tried to think through this, I think that the reason we resist the doctrine of election is because of one of two reasons. Either, number one, we think there will be someone who wants to be a Christian but will be left out. Or, secondly, someone who could care less about God and salvation but somehow is going to be included. And friend... Um, those are impossibilities. It is at this point that Paul uh, reminds us of Pharaoh. And the story of Pharaoh is embedded in the Exodus account. And what's interesting is that in Pharaoh's story, there are times when it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. You read of that in a place like uh, Exodus chapter 9, verse 12, Exodus chapter 10, Verse 1, Exodus chapter 10, verse 27. It specifically says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But then there are other places in the Exodus account where it says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. You read of that in Exodus chapter 8, verse 15, Exodus chapter 8, verse 32. In those places and others, it's, it clearly reads that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. So my question before you this morning is this. Did God harden Pharaoh's heart or did Pharaoh harden his own heart? And the answer Yes. Yes. It's not an either or. It's a both and. Yes. The point is this. That God's election does not contradict man's decision. That your faith is evidence of your election. It's impossible for anybody to claim to receive Christ to not be received by Christ. That if you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that is proof, that is evidence that you are the elect. You were chosen before the very foundation of the world. You were chosen as God's people, as God's children. You were chosen. And that faith that God deposited inside of you, that you willingly responded to, that faith is evidence of your election. So that Paul simply quotes Moses as Moses was hearing the Lord. And the Lord said, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. That God is the one who initiates salvation. God is the one who sovereignly selects individuals unto his salvation. And this was done from the very foundation of the world. Ah, but then you come to verse 19 of chapter 9. In verse 19, Paul anticipates a great question. Then why does God still blame us? Fantastic question. This is an awesome question because it had to be on the hearts uh, and the minds of the people in the first century and maybe on the hearts and minds of people in the 21st century. So, preacher, pastor, if you're telling me that it is God who sovereignly selects individuals for salvation, that it's by his mercy, not my merit, not based on my character, not based on how much good I do versus how much bad I do, or not even based on who my daddy is, my parental pedigree. So if it doesn't have anything to do with me, and it's all God and his massive mercy, then why does God still blame us? Great question. Why isn't it God's fault? I mean, if, if somebody's not elected by the Lord, why isn't that the Lord's fault? Fantastic question. 
In fact, I think he spends the rest of chapter 9, even into chapter 10, answering that question. And I find his answer insightful and helpful and somewhat comical. Initially, what Paul says is, you have no right to ask that question. Wait a minute, Paul, you're the one that penned the question. I mean, you're the one who wrote it down. And then you quickly turn around and say, you have no right to ask that question. And Paul, why do you say I have no right to ask that question? Because you cannot talk back to God. God's sovereign. He does all things well. He does all things right. Are you sovereign? No. Do you, think, do, you do all things well? No. Do you do all things right? No. Then you have no right to talk back to God. That's initially how he answers the question. You have no right to ask that question because you talk back to God. But then later in chapter 9, he says, but God's ways are higher than our ways. His ways are beyond our understanding. He quotes prophets like Hosea and Isaiah, just to name a couple. I think that when he gets into chapter 10, he's still answering that question. Why does God blame us? And beloved, I don't want to be too simplistic about this. But this is what I really believe. I think that God holds us responsible because we are responsible for how we respond to him. I mean, I don't want to be too simplistic. But why does God still blame us? Why does God hold us responsible? Because we are responsible for how we respond to him. What does it say in verse 8 of chapter 10? The word is near you. It's right there. It is right there for your taking. You want the word? You can have it. The word, God's truth, his gospel, the Lord Jesus Christ, the word became flesh, dwelt among us. You want the word? The word is right there. It's like low-hanging fruit. It's right there. It is right near you. So that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it's with your heart that you believe and are justified. It's with your mouth that you confess and are saved. So no one will be put to shame for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Who's going to have this faith? Everyone, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord. It's right there. You, you are the one who is responsible. I mean, the Lord says that you've got two options when it comes to Jesus. Either you can receive him or you can reject him. Those are only two options. There is no third option. You can either receive Jesus as Messiah or you can reject him as Messiah. But the word is right there beside you. It's right there near you. And if you want to receive him, he's here for the taken. If you want salvation, today can be the day of salvation. If you want your sins forgiven, today you can have your sins forgiven. Right now, right in this moment, simply call on the name of the Lord. If you want peace with God, you can have it today. If you want peace that passes all understanding, it can be accessible to you today. And it's up to you to receive it. It is your responsibility because God holds you responsible for how you respond to him. And so you can receive the peace that passes all human understanding. You can have purpose and meaning in life. You can know your creator and live for your redeemer. You can do that right now, today. God has made it possible. So what Paul is saying is that Jesus, the word, is right here near you. God's salvation, his favor, his blessing, it is by his mercy, not by your merit. But you have to respond to him 
willfully, deliberately, responsibly in faith. It's not an either or. It's a both and. It's not a contradiction. It's two sides of God's salvation coin. God chooses first. And those chosen in Christ willfully have to choose him. They have to call on the name of the Lord. They have to confess with their mouth, Jesus Lord, and believe in hearts that God raised him from the dead. And that person who does that will be saved. Faith is the evidence of your election. Faith in Christ is the evidence that you have been chosen by the Lord. But you have a responsibility. You have to respond by your own free will to the call of God upon your life. These are uh, heavy matters, aren't they? I mean, you don't get any heavier than how the doctrines of election and human free will intertwine. And I don't, uh, for once, assume that I have cleared it all up for you in one Sunday morning sermon. But I will say this, one day Charles Haddon Spurgeon was asked the question, uh, how do you reconcile divine election and human free will? And Spurgeon just simply said, I've never found the need to reconcile friends. God's sovereignty, divine election, and your responsibility, human free will, are not enemies. They don't contradict each other. They're two sides of the same salvation coin. They are very much in friendship one with the other. It was John MacArthur who said it like this, there's been someone who visualized it in this way that when the redeemed enter the pearly gates of heaven, there will be uh, something like a banner over that entrance that says, whosoever will may come. And then the person said that uh, after the redeemed enter the pearly gates, they just might look back on that same sign, on the backside of that same sign, We'll say chosen before the very foundation of the world. It's two sides of God's salvation coin. The Apostle Paul did not write Romans chapters 9 and 10 to resolve the theological tension between divine election and human free will. That's not the purpose of Romans 9 and 10. Paul never resolves the tension. In fact, I would go so far as to say there's no biblical writer that resolves the tension between divine election and human free will. And if the Bible doesn't resolve the tension, I shouldn't either. That somehow, someway, God wants that tension. That somehow there's faith in that. To trust and believe. If you ask the question, do we as a church, do we as a body of believers, do we affirm and believe in divine election? Absolutely we do. And then do we believe in human free will, that it's a necessity for a person to respond willfully to the call of God upon their life in order for them to be saved? Absolutely we do. And that is not a contradiction. That's being biblical. So uh, Paul did not write Romans 9 and 10 to relieve the tension, and I don't think the tension needs to be relieved. I think you need to live with that tension between divine election and human free will. But you ask yourself, okay, so... If he didn't write this to resolve the tension, why did he write it? Great question. Remember the very beginning I said that uh, he was weeping over the lostness that surrounded him and his nation? 
And because of that, knowing the massive mercy of God and knowing that a person has to come to a willful acceptance of Jesus Christ as Messiah, I think he's telling the church at Rome and he's telling the church at Pelham, listen, we've got to do our job to take the gospel to the nations. So in chapter 10, verse 14, how can they call on the one they have not believed in? How can they believe in the one that they've never heard of? How can they hear unless someone preaches to them? How can they preach unless they are sent? Friend, in those few verses, the apostle gives us God's plan A of evangelizing the nations. That's it. That's the only plan there is. There ain't no plan B. This is the only plan that God has given to share the gospel with the nations. How can people who are not Christian, outside of Christ, how can they call on the one they don't believe in? How can they believe in the one that they've never heard of? How can they hear unless someone preaches? Don't misunderstand and misinterpret that word preach. It doesn't mean it's only the pastor's job. The preaching is the proclamation of the gospel. And who proclaims the gospel? Answer, the redeemed. The redeemed, not just the preacher, but also all those who are redeemed in Christ. We proclaim the gospel. How can they call on the one they have not believed in? How can they believe in the one they have not heard? How can they hear unless someone like you and me, unless we go and proclaim the gospel to them? And how can we preach, proclaim the gospel, unless we're sent? You know, this really is a foolproof plan. It can't fail. This is God's operation of how he is going to redeem the reprobate. How he's going to save the lost. How he's going to take the gospel to the nations. The only way it fails is if the sent don't go. Did you catch that? And the only way this plan fails is if the sent don't go. For if they don't go, then they won't preach. If they don't preach, then the name of Jesus cannot be heard. If the name of Jesus cannot be heard, then he cannot be believed in. If he can't be believed in, then no one who is lost can call on his holy name. The only way it fails is if the sent don't go. What is the purpose of the church? Well, the church is a collection of baptized believers in the Lord. I mean, we are salt and light. We are missionaries. Our faith not only is the evidence of our election, but our faith is the mandate of the mission. God has given you faith, don't waste it. God has planted faith inside of you, don't squander it, because faith is the mandate of the mission. Because of faith in Jesus Christ, it motivates us to go and to tell. And friends, if the church doesn't go to the nations, whether that's across the street, across town, or across the globe, if the church is not on the go with the gospel, who's going to do it? I mean, if the church doesn't go, if the redeemed don't go, if brothers and sisters in Christ don't tell somebody else about Jesus, I mean, if, if we don't do that, who's going to proclaim the good news? I can tell you this much, the government won't do it. The military won't do it. Wall Street is not going to do it. The academy is not going to do it. If the church doesn't do it, it won't happen. 
We are called to go into lostness, that lostness that breaks us, that lostness that causes tears to stream down our faces. And we are called and motivated by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ to go share the good news of Jesus. Friends, we are living in a historical time when there is so much decay in this culture and so much division in this nation. And as I think about it, we are much to blame for that. And the reason I say that is because I think the American church, especially at this time in human history in the United States of America, the American church has to take a hard look into the mirror and see herself for who she is. Because I don't think that we as the American church have introduced enough people to our best friend. And by the way, our best friend is Jesus. I don't think that we've introduced enough people to King Jesus to tell them that Jesus came on a rescue mission to seek and to save them. Because when Jesus takes over a person's life, Jesus changes the way I think. Jesus changes the way I feel. Jesus changes the tone of my rhetoric. Jesus changes how I interact with people. Jesus changes my values. When Jesus is king of my life, he changes everything. And could it be that we find ourselves in this moral decay and in this divisive, a divided country and culture because the church has aborted its primary mission, which is plan A, to take the gospel across the street and across the globe I was hoping for a heartier amen but maybe it's just oh my because we know that if we are the redeemed we've got to go tell faith is the evidence of our election faith is the mandate of the mission and I pray that we will be a church of pretty feet how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. I've been on trips with some of you. I've been on mission trips with others. And I know that some of you, especially you men, you got some ugly toes because I've seen them. But I pray that we are a church of pretty feet. Not glamour pretty feet, but pretty feet according to Romans chapter 10. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. The invitation this morning is quite simple. If you have never trusted Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, I implore you, I invite you today, right now, that once the first note is struck, for you to come, take one of the ministers by the hand and say, I need a personal relationship with Jesus. If you're watching on live stream, and you want to trust Jesus as your Savior and Lord, please contact me as it's going to be directed at the bottom of your screen. The invitation not only is a call for the lost, but is also a call for the redeemed. If you are a baptized believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, I am imploring you that this week, this month, this year, you share the gospel with more people than you ever have in your entire life. And I realize for some that may be one. Because the stats are staggering that the vast majority of the redeemed, the church, has never shared their faith with anybody. 
So I'm challenging you. This week, this month, this year, share the gospel with more people than you've ever shared with before. Share with your family, your friends. Share with your classmates, your, your uh, uh, business partners, your, your people in the marketplace. Share with anybody and everybody that the Lord brings across your path and the Spirit of God prompts you to have a conversation with, with them, to tell them just how much mercy is available for them in Jesus Christ. Because I am just somebody trying to tell anybody that there's a Savior named Jesus who can save everybody. Did you hear what I said? I'm just somebody. I'm just trying to tell anybody that there is a Savior named King Jesus and he can save everybody. I can tell by the look on your face, y'all ain't got it yet. So I'm just somebody. And I'm just trying to tell anybody that there is a Savior. His name is King Jesus. And he came to seek and to save everybody who calls on his name. I don't want to be the only somebody in the house today. I don't want to be the only somebody who makes a commitment today. I'm not going to be the only somebody who makes a promise to King Jesus. For I am somebody and you're somebody. And we're just going to tell anybody that there is a Savior named King Jesus. And he can save everybody. Because this This good word has been given to us and we will not squander it. We will not waste it. We will allow it to impact our life and our living. And we will tell somebody this day, this week, this month, this year, we're going to tell somebody about King Jesus. (laughs) Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this invitation. And Lord, I pray that the lost will be found. I pray the redeemed will be so in love with you that we can't shut up about Jesus. So help us, God, today to make commitments to you that will carry us all throughout this year. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.